Well, it was about seven years ago that the Lord began calling me into pastoral ministry. I remember clearly telling my wife about what I thought the Lord was doing 10 days after our second child was born, well sleep deprived. I sat her down to have a very important and honest conversation after we had just put the baby down. And that, that went over about as well as you'd expect with sleep deprivation for both of us. But after getting some more sleep and some time to talk, we began a conversation that would last for several months. The question about me pursuing pastoral ministry revolved primarily in our minds about training. If, I was, if the Lord was calling me to be a pastor, where would I go for training? You know, at the time we were living in Southern California, and there was really only one church that was reasonably uh, a good option for us. So as I searched, eventually I landed on applying for a five-month internship in Washington, D.C. It seemed like the best option that aligned with my growing convictions about the church and about pastoral ministry. So in March of 2017, I flew out to D.C. to interview for this internship. And the weekend was not just an interview for me, but for 15 other guys who were also interested in the five available slots. That didn't include the 50 or so other guys who were also interested in the spots but had interviewed previously. They were still hoping to get in. And I'll just say it was a fun weekend in our nation's capital that included not only an interview with the pastors, but also an under-the-hood look at how this church operated and how its ministry convictions were built on Scripture. See, there wasn't just these guys interviewing. There was hundreds of men from churches across the country in D.C. to participate in this under-the-hood weekend. And only a few of us brave souls were there trying to get jobs. So after that weekend, I returned home with a hope and a prayer that I'd be moving my family across the country by the end of the summer. You know, we were told it would only take us, they would only take them two weeks to let us know if we were accepted into the program. So naturally, coming from D.C., it took at least it took three weeks. And I received an email, and this is what the email said. I'm writing to inform you that we are unable to offer you a place in this terms class. There were many excellent applicants, and the decision of which men to accept has not been easy. If you would like for us to reconsider your application for a future internship class, please let us know. Well, to say that I was crushed is really putting it lightly. I thought this was the plan. The Lord was leading me out of my current job, which was college ministry, and into pastoral ministry. I knew I was supposed to apply for this internship to learn from this pastor. And I was distraught. And, and to make matters even worse, that pastor in D.C. was going to be in town preaching at my seminary the very next day, and I had already been planning to go and hear him. I'd been hoping to show up as his newest intern, but now I was going to just show up as his latest rejection. But see, I respected this man, and I was determined to go and hear him speak. I still believed in what he was teaching. So the next day, I made my way out to the seminary to hear him. And after he finished, I walked up to him and just said, Mark, thank you for giving me the chance to apply for your internship and come and see your church. It was such a blessing for me. I'm going to apply for the other internship that is up in Portland. Mark's response was not what I expected. He, he looked at me, he said, he said, Jeff, we may have a spot opening 
uh, one of the guys might not be able to do it. And if he drops, you can have it. In that moment, that sorrow that I had felt over being de- you know, denied, the spot turned immediately to joy. Sadness turned to gladness. I, I was over the moon. God had taken what had brought me into deep despair and raised me up into rejoicing. Now, ironically, this story ends with me moving to Portland and eventually coming to you all and not D.C. And I wish I could tell you all that story too, but I'll have to wait for another sermon. My story is but a picture of moments that have happened to all of us, sorrow turning into joy. And in our psalm this morning, King David reflects on what it meant for his sorrows to turn into joy. He puts poetic words to the experience of us all. For how often do we find that in our lives, our sorrows turn into joy, sadness into gladness. We're fired from our job only to find a better job than the previous one. We lose our home only to be placed in a more affordable and preferable one. Relational distress turns into relational intimacy. Rebellious children are brought back. It so often appears that God does something in the dark night of the soul that prepares us for the dawning of the light of morning. But we also know what it's like to just experience sorrow in this life. That rebellious child doesn't return. You've lost your spouse and they're not coming back. Financial troubles keep compounding. Sorrow upon sorrows are stacking up. And the question we find ourselves asking is, where is God in all of this? Where is God in our sorrows? And as our text will tell us this morning, God is right there, turning our mourning into dancing. Like I said, our text for this morning is Psalm 30, which is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving, but which is very acquainted with grief. The message of Psalm 30 is this, rejoice, for God will turn your sorrow into joy. The message of Psalm 30 is this. It's up on the screen. Rejoice, for God will turn your sorrow into joy. The difficulty for us is that God offers no timeline on how or when he will do it. But we are left with a promise. God will turn our sorrow into joy. And this will serve as the outline for our sermon And my first point this morning is just one word, rejoice. Let's read Psalm 30, verses 1 through 12. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. 
You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. So we're just going to look at the first five verses here to start. You know, something has happened to David. You see that in these first few verses, right? He says, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. He has been lifted out of the depths. David called out to the Lord and the Lord healed him. You know, David's expressions in these in this first three verses reveals the dire circumstances that he found himself in. David is on the doorstep of death, and yet the Lord brought him back. Now, it's likely, we don't exactly know what David is facing. It's likely that David is facing some type of illness, an illness that was threatening to take his life. And in his desperation, he cries out to God for help. Verse 1 shows us that, that while David was concerned for his health, that he would be revived, one of David's greatest concerns has to do with his enemies. Look, look there in verse 1. He says at the end, and did not let my enemies gloat over me. See, David expresses his gratefulness for being delivered from the depths because now his enemies will have no reason to boast over him. They will have no reason to rejoice. David was not defeated by death, but conquered death. And God's sparing of David was a testimony to him and to his enemies that God could in fact do mighty things, not just in battle, but also in the health of his people. See, God's deliverance of David is, is a reminder to us uh, of the importance of trusting God even to the very end of our lives. Friends, we never know what God will do. We never know the plan of God until God accomplishes his plan. We don't lose hope for the health of our loved ones. We don't stop praying for the salvation of our children. We don't give up. We keep looking to the Lord for what he will do. Because there are many times when the Lord will deliver us in this life, which will then lead naturally to verses 4 and 5. When David is, is delivered, he turns and he says in verses 4 and 5, Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And you can see there's a shift here. David is praising God for what he has done, and now he projects those praises onto the people. David is saying, seeing praises, people, for what has happened to me is what God does for you too. Praise his holy name. See, if you've ever wondered why singing plays such an important role in the life of a local church, the Psalms are full of examples that testify to its importance. Because the Psalms were the hymn book of the people of Israel. When David writes and the people sing, the people are confessing who God is. And, and the same is true for us when we sing. We're actually confessing things about God. We're speaking truths about who God is. You can think about that song that we just sang earlier in the service, Only a Holy God. No, I am not going to sing it. Come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. When we sing that song, we're singing to one another. We're exhorting one another to sing to our holy God. Or think about the song that we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. 
that song which says, Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed thy hand hath provided. We're teaching each other when we sing. We're confessing truths about God. We're, we're, we're shaping our theology about who God is. Like when we sing a song like, Only a Holy God, we're, we're telling one another who we believe God to be. And we, when we sing, we're responding to who God is. Like when we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, we are actually responding and saying, God, this is what you have done, and here is now my response to you. This is why so many of the older hymns that we sing here on Sunday mornings have survived the test of time, because the truths they confess are truths that Christians should always confess. And if you've been around long enough, you've heard many modern songs that maybe concern you about the future of writing Christian music. And I would share your concern with some of the music that has been written. But there's also lots of reasons to be encouraged because there are some excellent writers out there that are writing wonderful Christian music that I believe will also stand the test of time. Hymn writers like Keith and Kristen Getty, uh, the, the group from Australia, City of Light, those are two of my favorites. We sing many of their songs here on Sunday mornings. They are writing good music that we should welcome and sing and confess together. David exhorts the people to praise God for his faithfulness and for his holiness, and he gives them a reason and a reminder as to why in verse 5. Because God's anger lasts a moment. His favor lasts a lifetime. And we're left asking, well, how, how does this work? It, it works like this. Weeping may stay for the night. That's what he says in verse 5b. Weeping may stay for the night. Weeping, well, this idea of weeping may show up at your door and be an overnight guest. But after the weeping will come the rejoicing. David is teaching the people about the tendencies of God. That God is the one who will discipline his people, but God's faithful people never lose God's favor. There may be great weeping, there may be great suffering, but there will be a dawn of rejoicing. And here we take the psalmist at his word and we claim this for ourselves in the way that it was intended. It's a confession about how God works. First suffering, then rejoicing. First weeping, then rejoicing, pain before pleasure. God wounds us so that he can restore us. He disciplines us so he can bring us into his joy. And it would be impossible for us to put together a hard and fast rule for how God does this. See, because you may find yourself today going through immense suffering, even right now. You might be asking as you read verse 5, when will the morning come for me? Now, I saw a post on social media this week by a pastor who was burying his son. And on the, pastor, it's, on the, on the post it said, good night, son. See you in the morning. His morning will not be for many months and for many years. See, we find ourselves asking of this text, when will the time of rejoicing come for me? When will weeping leave my home as an overnight guest and rejoicing fill my heart? I don't know. <laughs> Which is really of, of no comfort. But God knows. And that 
is all the comfort in the world. See, the Lord turns our suffering into rejoicing. That's a guarantee. He does it in His way for His glory. See, your suffering in this life, friends, your suffering may follow you all the way to the grave, but that is where its reach is stopped. Suffering cannot follow us beyond this life, for when we awake, we will be eternally with God in His presence, and all we will see is mourning. Our suffering in this life has a clock, and there will be a point at which that clock strikes zero, and then there will be joy, and that will be a joy everlasting. David teaches us to rejoice. First suffering, then glory. First suffering, then joy. That is David's posture. Rejoice. That is David's example. Rejoice. And second, the reason that is his posture, the reason that is his example, is for God will turn your sorrow. This will be a complete sentence on the third point. For now, it's an incomplete sentence. For God will turn your sorrow. You see, what I love about David is how relatable and raw he is. Look at verses 6 through 10. He says, When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You know, we can all echo David's statement in verse 6. When we feel secure in this life, it's as if we will never be thrown down. When we have God's favor, all is right. But then God hides his face and we fall from our throne. You know, it seems that David recognized upon reflection that he had actually taken God's good provision of verse 7a for granted. He corrupted it in his own heart to believe that actually, no, it was David who had accomplished and established his throne on his own secure footing. And it was the falling from that secure footing that revealed to David what was true in our heart, in his heart. And you know, I think we find the same to be true for us as well. When we're secure, when life is coasting along, it's easy to become complacent and loosen our grip upon the Lord. It's when life becomes unstable and we begin to lose our footing that once again we reach out our hand looking for the Lord. You see, David's suffering leads to his reflection about who God is, and, and it reveals David's pride. He found security in his own strength until his trials revealed to him that it was always by God's strength that his throne was established. And brothers and sisters, this is the reality for us is that when we go through suffering, it reveals what's in our hearts. It reveals what we truly believe about who God is and about what he's doing. And suffering will do one of two things to you. Suffering will drive you towards God or it will drive you away from God. But see, it's not the actual suffering that determines our response. It's what we already believe about suffering that determines our response when suffering comes our way. If we find ourselves angry at God for the suffering that we're enduring, 
Friends, that reveals more about us than it does about God. If we're bitter towards God about our past sufferings, again, that more, reveals more about what's going on in our hearts than it does about the character of God. You see, we bring a theology to our suffering, which exposes the gaps in our theology. See, suffering exposes our pride because suffering exposes that we actually thought we could solve all of our problems. And when we realize we can't, where do we turn? Suffering exposes our unrealistic expectations of life, that this world and this life are broken, and we shouldn't expect everything to go our way. Suffering exposes our unrealistic expectations of others. Church, if you haven't experienced it, we will let each other down. We will hurt one another eventually. And how do we respond? How do we respond when suffering actually happens within our walls towards one another? Suffering exposes the way we've always doubted God. You see, when things don't go our way, it just confirms our belief that was hidden deep that God doesn't actually care about us. Church, our theology of suffering is what prepares us to suffer. We all have one, but the question is, how has it been shaped? David gives us a bit of a theology of suffering in this psalm. Look again at verses 8 through 10. Let me read it for us. David's response to his suffering is this. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. See, to the Lord, David called. To the Lord, David depended upon for mercy. It was the Lord that would need to save David from going down to the pit. It was the Lord who would need to be his help. David's petition is the natural fruit of someone who understood that though God may at times hide his face, as he says in verse 7, It was God who was the one who could be merciful and would be merciful. Though God's hand may afflict David, it was also God who would deliver David. See, David's suffering drove him closer to God, more dependent upon the Lord. And the question we must ask is, does it do the same for us? Does our suffering drive us closer into the arms of God? Or does it cause us to create distance? Does it cause us to stop surrounding ourselves with the things that God has given us to remind us of his goodness? Does it cause us to stop coming to church for a season because church reminds us of the pain that we're going through? Do we close our Bibles and leave it on the shelf because just opening it is another reminder of our pain? We shut people out and we shut down. Maybe Instead, for comfort, we turn to our sinful desires to help us forget our pain and seek comfort in our sin. The question I'm surfacing is not if you miss a Sunday or struggle to open up your Bible. The question is, what's happening in the heart? What is going on within? How is your theology of suffering shaping the way you're responding to the suffering that you're going through? David's heart reveals who he turns to when life gets hard. And brothers and sisters, we need to have a good theology of suffering so that when we go through it, 
it can actually become a season that rather than deteriorating our relationship with the Lord, strengthens our relationship with Him, causes us to cling closer and move closer to Him, not something that breaks it. Well, to just give us a bit more uh, of a theology of suffering, let's just look at a few examples that we have in the New Testament that will help us shape our understanding of suffering. The Apostle Paul gives us a wonderful, I mean, he lived it. He gives us a good theology of suffering. We'll look at a few things from Paul. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, you can write this down. You can listen as I read it. I'm not going to, I'm going to turn to a few verses. So just, you can write these down and look at them up later. But 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, Paul says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, Paul saw, <laughs> Paul saw all the troubles of this life as preparation for glory. You know, Tim read for us Jesus' theology of suffering, or at least one example, in John 16, 20 through 22. I'm just going to read verse 22 for us. He, Jesus says, So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Jesus promises his disciples that their grief will turn to joy, suffering then rejoicing. And this was both fulfilled at his resurrection, which is kind of immediately in view, and then again when they meet, met him in glory. And again for us, when we meet him in glory, our joy will be fulfilled and no longer taken away. Paul, again, shows us that God has a purpose for our suffering, that there is actually no such thing as purposeless suffering in this life. Romans 8, 28 through 29a says, And we know that in all things, I could probably let you all complete this verse for me, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Notice what that says. God uses all things for the purposes of conforming us to the image of Christ. And that all things includes all of our suffering in this life. It's not going to be easy, church. But God will use all things to conform us into the image of Christ. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10, through 10, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Our suffering is a revelation and reflection of the suffering of Christ. It's a reminder of the frailty of this life and of who we are, and it causes us to look to Christ as the true source of our hope and of our joy. You know, the verses I've read doesn't even begin to touch upon the wide array of verses in the New Testament that speak to suffering in this life as Christians. We didn't look at Hebrews 11 and 12. We didn't look at James 1. We didn't look at the whole book of 1 Peter or 1 John. See, the New Testament authors agree with David 
first suffering, then glory. We will suffer now, and we will rejoice in glory forever. You know, the statement that we've been reflecting upon in in this sermon from our passage is rejoice, for God will turn your sorrow into joy. The theology of suffering helps us remember what David is teaching us. Our suffering will lead to joy. And we can rejoice in the midst of it because we know where it leads. We know the end from the beginning. We know that all the sorrows we experience in this life will finally end in eternal rejoicing with the Lord. And this leads us to my last point, to complete the sentence, into joy. Verses 11 and 12. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Well, God has taken David and transformed his wailing, his, his mourning, and his suffering into dancing. He removed the clothes of mourning and clothed him with joy. And when God delivers his people, our response does not need to be sheepish. When God answers your prayer, it doesn't have to be, yay, God. Right? It can actually be rejoicing. We can, we can text all our friends. We can, well, be careful about posting on social media, but text all your friends and family. Let them know God has answered your prayer. God has taken your suffering and turned it into dancing. There's a great joy and delight in knowing that God is the one who did it. That he turned our wailing into dancing. That he removed our sackcloth and clothed us with joy. And church, there's, there's no greater example of this, of turning mourning into dancing, than in the gospel. See, it's, it's the message of the gospel that says that Jesus bore all of our sins. He took upon all of our mourning and gave us clothes of joy in him. Jesus became the man of sorrows so that we could be the people of joy. And and friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the, the message of Christianity is not about fixing your sin by right living, by trying to establish yourself like David did upon his own mountain. It's about you getting, it's not about you getting yourself out of your suffering. It's about you recognizing that you have sinned against a good and a holy God. It's about acknowledging that your sins deserve judgment. And it's about looking to Christ who died for your sins, who became sin, so that in him, and because of him, you and I can become the righteousness of God. See, the gospel is about recognizing that Christ is the only answer to our suffering. The call of Scripture for us is to repent, to turn from our sin, put our faith in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know the Bible exhorts you to do that today. Today, don't wait, but repent and believe and trust in Christ. And if you'd like to talk more about this, come find me. I'll be in the back after the service. Come talk to the person you came with. But don't leave here today without getting your life right with God. Well, David ends this psalm with praise in verse 12. Let's read it again. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. 
See, this is a response of a heart that has realized all its worth in Christ. David sings praises because God had delivered him. And now we sing praises because of our great deliverance, chiefly in Christ. It's Christ who has delivered us from death, who has given us life, who we praise forever. Every single day that we live is a day to sing and praise God who has delivered us from our sin, who has raised us up from death and has given us life, who has set us on our feet to praise and rejoice Him. You see, we can sing and dance even in the midst of great suffering because we know the God that has delivered us from the greatest suffering of all, and that is death. Because of Christ, we can rejoice. For God has turned our sorrows into joy. And when he does so, finally, on that day, we will continually sing praises to him forever. For God is our God, and we are his people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning as the God who turns our mourning into dancing. That though we will suffer in this life, we will experience great trials in this life, we know the God who has saved us, who has delivered us from death, the greatest trial of all. And so, Lord, we can rejoice because, Lord, we know that you will turn all of our earthly sorrows into joy because you have done that for us on the cross. So, God, would we sing now in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering, would we sing now and rejoice as we praise your holy name. Amen. Would you all